Hello my friends and welcome to the last episode of series one of the Plant-Based Business Podcast brought to you by Feevolution. I'm your host today, Damien Clarkson, and this is the show where every week we explore what it takes to create and scale a plant-based business. On this show, we speak to a range of entrepreneurs and investors who are passionate about creating positive plant power change in the world. This is the last episode of series one of the podcast and this week's show is going to be a little bit different. What we have done for this episode of the podcast is to sit down and select some of our favourite moments from series one for you to enjoy. We're going to return with series two of the podcast very soon. We will have a short break of about a week and we've already been recording some conversations with game-changing entrepreneurs and investors. Before we get into today's episode of the podcast, I want to thank my series co-hosts, Louis Blake and Julian Adele, and our fabulous editor, Bridie Addison-Child. I also want to thank all of you listening to this podcast from all around the world. It has been truly amazing to receive messages from you guys, our community over on Instagram, at Plant Based Business, and personally on LinkedIn and via email. It's been really overwhelming and just incredible to see that so many people have found value in what we're doing. We've always said we want to show to offer you the most value possible and you know so please get in touch with us um if you're listening you've got some suggestions for the show or you just would like us to tackle something or interview someone please get in touch you can email me at damien at feevolution.co get in touch with us at plant-based business on social media or at feevolution underscore on social media Okay, that's it for today's show. Um, Thanks for all the support of season one. We'll be back really soon with series two. But in the meantime, enjoy this fabulous episode where we round up the best bits of series one of the Plant-Based Business Podcast. Thanks. Bye. Today's guest was Jonathan Petridis. JP, as he's affectionately known, is a co-founder of All Plants. When um, When you move back then to the UK... Where does the, I guess, the vegan plant-based part of this journey begin? And how does that play into wanting to create all plants? Yeah, well, um, it actually started while I was still in Nairobi because I met my wife, Delphi, there. And uh, around the time I met her, she just turned veggie. Well, actually, initially pesky. And I, and I was like, wow, this person's so amazing. I can't believe she has such values. Like, what, what, what an incredible person. I could never do this, but wow, you know, this person's amazing. And I also was desperately trying to impress her with everything I did because <laughs> I was falling over myself to, 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 to do my best to get her to like me. Uh, and so very quickly, I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do this uh, pesky thing. I'm into it. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Obviously trying to convince her to move in with me, et cetera. Um, so so went, went down that path, but only at home. And for a good like two, three years, um, I was kind of gradually more and more pescatarian and then veggie at home, but still literally com- the complete opposite when I was out and about, just just doing everything I always had done, whether it was having a burger, a steak, or obviously as a red-blooded Cypriot, Chef Dalia, Suvlakia, Halloumi, all of these things, like uh, that was just my norm, right? Uh, the tornado of discovery for me was definitely kickstarted by the release of Cowspiracy. Um, and what followed, I have, I was doing a lot of my own work at the time and I had a lot of time to, if I found something interesting, just go really, really deep into it. And this grabbed me in a very personal way. You know, I very quickly felt extremely convinced that in the next couple of decades, if we do not move, uh, the 
entirety of humanity's appetite significantly over to a more plant-based diet, leave alone an all plant-based diet, uh, then we're, I mean, everything's done. Like it's game over. Um, and as soon as, as soon as you really take that in, in, I felt like I drew myself into a bit of a logical corner. The next step was undoubtedly, well, I need to do something about this myself first. Um, I don't know what else, what else can I do? Um, and I, yeah, so I, I started out eating, uh, a little bit more plant-based and I was like, okay, I'm just going to commit. Did a month as an experiment. Um, and it was great. And I guess at the time I had loads of free time to enjoy the journey into what's actually quite confusing, challenging, uh, and particularly from a what do I eat perspective for a lot of people, if you don't enjoy cooking or don't have the time, forget about it. Like it's, it's so, it's just so intimidating. There's how on earth do I, do I flip reverse these two, three, four recipes that I've known all my life to make them now in, in this thing called vegan or plant-based? Like it's too it's too much and everyone's got way too much on their plate and you know but for me it was really fun because i think if you do enjoy cooking it's actually a challenge you're like right how can i do this how can i reinvent lasagna because that's the thing that i was brought up on once a week mum would cook like the most insane lasagna right i, I really want to prove to myself that i can have that and not be going without and not be having to live like a monk uh because to be quite honest with you i am no monk I can't do that. Like, I, I really believe that part of the purpose of life is around pleasure and joy. Uh, and so for me, it was really important to conquer that. And so that was very personal and a lot of fun. And I also quite quickly, I don't know about you guys, but I quite quickly found that everywhere I went, whether I was catching up with one friend for a coffee or at a dinner party table, every single person would, would say to me, what on earth? Like, why have you gone vegan? Are you mad? And then you'd get this like list of repeated questions, you know, a couple of dozen things, you know, and where do you get your protein from? But it's, it's but flipped I, now. It's flipped it's, completely. Yeah. It, but it's also, but <laughs> back in the day, like it has been. Like yeah. This is four years, years ago. ago yeah. 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 So it was, it was those questions. It was also like, yeah, but um, avocados use loads of water or like uh, quinoa is, there's a quinoa shortage in Bolivia. And you're just like, and so you end up having to explain yourself over and over and over till you're blue in the face. Yeah. And it was driving me nuts, right? And, and I quite quickly realized, actually, you know what? It doesn't matter what I say. When, when, in, in, in these conversations, you can't change someone's opinion by just answering their questions. All I can do is show them how delicious it is. And so that's what I started doing. I just started making at any chance, anyone who was, I was going around to for and, dinner. And in a practical sense, the way I guess this, the, the, the embryonic stage of this business, essentially you cooking for other people to show them, hey, look, this is actually really, really nice. Yeah. Really easy. Yeah. And there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of choices that you probably never knew about when you're eating uh, animal products. That, are, that, that you can enjoy because you've just, you've just had yeah. it. It's such a easy and much more fluid conversation starter. So how does that become a business? One of the, I guess, the key learnings for starting a business for me was just start somewhere. I'm here with my good friend, Amber Fraser, co-founder of Brave. I was spinning my wheels for about a year being like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I don't know anyone in food. I wouldn't really know who to talk to, you know, about these kinds of things. and. Um, I just thought, okay, well, I'll start making these 
snacks in the oven and starting doing shelf life tests and um, just trying to learn everything I could about. Yeah, where were you going to learn, <laughs> learn this stuff? Because you, you were working for uh, FMCG. Yes. Around, but it, w- yeah. it wasn't in food, was it? it was... No, so it was L'Oreal. So it was, a, it was yeah. you know, um, makeup and, and hair products and skincare. So I think I, was, I, I learned a lot about the UK market and retailers and margins and business plans and all those things. And that was kind of the, the thought behind you know, working for a big company was actually to get all the learnings I possibly could so that we could kind of eventually leave and and do our own thing. Um, But no, I had no idea about food. Um, I went to places like the British Library is is an amazing resource. I went there as well. Yeah. I first started my very first business (laughs) and they're like, IP center was like oh, yeah what's brilliant this IP like, yeah no it's brilliant but yeah if you're, especially if you're starting out it's a great place yes. to go yeah they're very welcoming so I was reading all the mental reports all the Niels the free reports that I could get about food what was going on what was growing the category you know who was doing well who was struggling uh, future food reports those kinds of things so it was just I think it's one step at a time really so you you know for me it was learning about the market um, going into retailers I was at Whole Foods or Planet Organic or even Tesco looking for gaps so I was looking at where we could sit on shelf um, what the price point might be what the pack sizes might be and um, and you can find all that information a lot of that information when you go into store and look at okay you know what are our what are competitors doing and um, how are they talking about their products what are they pricing it at are they running promotions those kinds of things so I think even before you start even before you launch there's you know at least a year's worth of of pre-work that you need to do in order to get ready for 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 launch so so this is great so you got to 2016 yes yeah sort of, you had a, a, yes, a product a product I, i'd left l'oreal we got into an accelerator program that just offered us um it was called mass challenge it's not around anymore but it I know offered mass us challenge. It was okay in, yeah. the, in the basement of, um, of um, tobacco docks, docks. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was the, nice. the dungeon accelerator yeah, program exactly. <laughs> And it was good because they didn't take any equity. Um, and I was surrounded by these amazing businesses. They were all in health tech, um, high tech. Um, and so I was I was surrounded by these, these businesses that were raising like millions of pounds. And I had no idea about investment. I didn't know that, you know, that, that SCIS and EIS relief even, uh, you know, existed. So it was a really good space to be incubated because, I, A, I was used to going into an office every day. So I really valued having a community to go and work with and then b there was mentors and and access to investors and a uh, whole you know workshops and and learnings and stuff like that general business not necessarily food related but it was there that i found i got more done in 2 months or 3 months of full-time work on Brave than I did in a year previously. So um, I think it it comes to a point where you've done everything that you can while you're still working full-time and really hold on to that paycheck as long as you possibly can don't jump too early but as soon as he said working full time he did yeah until until uh january of that year so i i left l'oreal in september and then he he kind of was doing part-time and freelancing and stuff like that to keep the the lights on and then and then he came full-time in january which is really what we needed because he did a lot of the branding work the strategy work um, you know, why Brave, like how is this, this connected to pulses, all those kinds of things. So it really sort of needed at that point kind of two brains. Today we're here with Scott McCulloch, co-founder of The Vegan Kind. Two-part question. 
One, what do you think caused the subscription boxes to grow so quickly? And two, what gave, and it may follow on from this, what gave you the confidence to, to leave your job? Um, the subscription boxes, I think, A, grew so quickly because we focus on our customers. We've got great, great service. We know we do. Um, we've got such a strong social following. We've always focused on that. We've always had veganism at the core of what we do we feel like we're as a team we're like really on the pulse um collectively there's now 15 of us and we're really aware of the kind of difference that veganism makes and i just think that people tune into that and like what we stand for and kind of like our culture and beliefs and and have just stood by us you know we've got customers our very 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 first ever subscriber when Karis and i pushed the button and turn a website on live and we're like i hope to god somebody signs up tonight uh, our first ever subscriber is still a subscriber to our lifestyle box today um wow. which i think says a lot um so they've always grown through that but they've been grown now because because we're very fortunate that we've got the supermarket um, I'll come back to your point about how I felt confident about leaving, but the supermarket side of the business now, we've we've deliberately elected to keep that separate from the subscription boxes. So we've got two completely separate websites, two separate operating models. They operate from separate warehouses, but they dovetail in and both benefit each other. So every time um, we ship out a vegan kind subscription uh, supermarket order, there's a flyer in it to say, do you know about our subscription boxes? Do you know, do you want a discount? Um, and likewise, when you sign up for a subscription box, so we don't when we're advertising on social media. Um, we don't say we're a subscription box and we're a supermarket make your choices now folk are like ah it's too confusing you know we we've got separate social pages for both of them we only talk about that on each page and we only advertise about that to each page and then we at the back end um cross promote but in terms of like why i was confident to leave my job i mean i guess the truth of the matter is i was only to a degree confident you know um i was a uh, you know, we had a true belief in what we had and we just, you know, I guess as as a couple, you know, we were, you know, happy, solid as a couple and we were able to sort of look at each other and say, look, if this went horribly wrong, are we all right type thing? Um, and, you know, we were, we were like, yeah, let's go for it. Honestly, when I told my parents that I was going to start a peanut butter company, they almost like hit the floor. I think they were like, what is going on? Because <laughs> it is really niche, I'm not going to lie. It's, it probably sounds incredibly weird when, you know... It sounded weird five years ago. Exactly. <laughs> now it's slightly more normal. My parents accept it, whereas seven years ago, I think they were probably like, what were you thinking? So today I'm with Pip Murray, founder of Pip and Nut. How's it going, Pip? Hello. Yeah, really good, thank you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. I love being here. So you spot the opportunity. Yep. And so what kind of time period was this? So, yeah, so I came up with the idea around sort of Jan, Feb 2013, so about seven years ago. And that was literally me kind of mentioning it to a couple of mates being like, you know, I think, I think you can probably make this into a product, into a brand. Um, and then it took two years to actually actually set it up and so um, did start in the kitchen where you kind of like yeah. messing around kind of yeah so i bought um a little like kind of fancy blender robocoop that was like my first business expense um and just would blend up peanut butters in my kitchen which again poor flatmates like they'd have me with like trays of peanuts being roasted in the kitchen uh, so, yeah, really the this is the thing it's not like kneading bread it's which is quite like beautiful and so it is a lot of like machinery noisy and then just put, put it in jars and I'd try it out with friends and then my first real step was actually taking it to Maltby Street Market in Bermondsey which is a lovely kind of foodie market in South London because one of my friends who had a kind of social enterprise at the time was like you know if you're gonna start you need to you need to start and actually tangibly make something 
which always feels a little bit self-conscious, I think, when you when you create a product which is ultimately not what you want to see in supermarkets, but is like a basic version of what it is. And by that I mean is cheap branding that you've just kind of created with a friend. You've packed the jar yourself, you've put the lid on, you put the label on yourself. It, it is handmade and homemade. But can you, you, <laughs> can you remember your first sale at that market? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I can remember... I remember just that nervousness of setting up my stand and just like putting my wares out and just standing there being so like, what, gonna come? what if everyone just sort of like wanders past? Or even worse, that comes and tries it and then like I wish I could just done that forever. Like, like, there is the such a community in, in London around and in those markets with the traders that are standing out there. We used to like swap our products to get like, you know, different treats from other stands and stuff. But it is, you know, a hotbed for trends and it is a good place to kind of, if you're wanting to reach... Uh, people that are quite, um, yeah, foodie, for want of a better word, they'll be walking past the stand and they'll give you a bit of a gauge as to whether or not the products or brand, well, not really brand, but at least the products resonate. So, yeah, it kind of gets you moving, gets you in that uncomfortable space of uh, putting yourself out there. So that was like my first step. I did that for about four or five months on Maltby Street during winter, which was a bad choice because it's very cold. Um, <laughs> at least you had peanut butter. But I had lots of peanut butter and, oh, my God, it's basically what I lived on when I was starting it up. And and so you're doing the markets, testing the products. Yeah. How did you go from that to the supermarkets, mm. I guess? So I think this is probably like the number one question that I always get asked from like people that email me. You have to have quite a lot of resilience, I think, to to make that step. So essentially it's about finding, we, we outsource our manufacturing um, to co-packers, so manufacturers. Um, and it's finding that factory that you firstly can make the product but ultimately that you can trust and it took me about eight nine months to eventually land on the manufacturer that said that they could make our product to the standard that I wanted um and really up until that point you basically got an idea that you know can't scale and that's really frustrating so people that are in that space it is it is until you can find a scalable factory that can give you the right cost price and all that you've not got a business so you may have the best idea in the world but you can't can't make it so eight nine months of searching and eventually landed on a, a manufacturer who, who were actually based in holland so i remember taking some annual leave from my job at the time and you know when people ask you where are you going on holiday and i and i'd slightly lie but in my head i was thinking god i'm going to literally the back end of nowhere in holland <laughs> to like a like industrial estate like not exactly a holiday um, and met the factory and they were brilliant and gave us a shot um so that's how i started really Manufacturing is the beast, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Today, I spoke with Stephanie Petitore, founder of Mindful Bites and Angel Investor. Because you have to, um, an awful lot of the products we make are intrinsically, we make and all the other startups make, are clearly products that have a high degree of innovation. And the innovation comes in the aesthetics, in the look, in the, the ingredient choice and what the products do. And the manufacturing world is very much used to rely on wheat, on uh, butter, milk and sugar. So you have some really structural difficulties there. I think it's important to accept that the search for the manufacturer will take time. Um, it's a due diligence on both sides. They will do a due diligence on you and you have to be very, very strict with the due diligence. It's a partnership that, you know, you need to sort of nail. It's 
important also to accept that ultimately even mission-driven businesses have to be viable businesses. So the aim is to actually scale up to the point that that growth can make the business sustainable. If we don't achieve that, then we haven't really proven the point that a business can be uh, looking after the planet, have a mission and still generate profits. It's For me, this is actually really important that we get this part right. So when creating a product, you always have, again, negotiating is very important. There'll be elements of negotiations that, you know, are go against the mission, go against what you stand for. But at times, you know, as entrepreneurs, we get obsessed with, you know, my snack should have this beautiful shape that only exists in your mind. And sometimes you get a little bit obsessed with certain things when the reality is maybe it creates a manufacturing obstacle and most importantly maybe consumers actually don't really care so especially at the beginning we get very obsessed with making this product that is going to be uniquely amazing from any sometimes you kind of have to go okay in order for me to remain loyal to the mission what is it that I can let go I was super strict on sugar, but I'll tell you what, as you know, you know, we had a very successful Christmas range and this is an Italian classic, the panettone. I mean, and everybody said to me, how am I going to do this without butter, without milk? I mean, you've ripped the product out of most ingredients. I can't not put sugar. There, for example, I had to accept a cake by definition has sugar and frankly, what I'm trying to do here is not to do a sugar-free product. That's not my mission. My mission is to do products that look beautiful, taste amazing, and are vegan, and their old ingredients are sustainably sourced. So sometimes you have to let go of few things as long as your mission is preserved. But on the search for the manufacturer, Google is your friend. Spend an awful lot of time Googling um, go to some, there, there's also, we don't know what the future holds clearly, but th there's usually um, trade events and one can very easily, for example, look up who exhibited a previous years. That is, I think, a great strategy. I'll also feel like sharing one tip. Do not ever rely on the website of the manufacturer as this guy somehow uh, I haven't found any manufacturer that tells you what they do clearly and neatly on their website. There's definitely a niche there someone can get into. If, if you're up for making websites for manufacturers, they need a lot of help, guys. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you kind of go like, sorry, but on your website, you kind of do a different line of products. And also, you know, I think in our enthusiasm, we like to say that we're a startup, I'm about to launch. You need to lie a little bit, you know. Sometimes you have to just um, omit the word that startups because I think manufacturers freak out a little bit. They go like, oh no, there's another one who has no idea. We need to do too much hand-holding. Just tell them, you know, we're adding a new range to our existing successful range that you can't see, but hey, our imaginary range. So don't try to kind of rehearse a little bit the conversation. Don't sound like... like they All these guys really want to do is just... Um, produce large volumes and fast. Quickly can they turn it around? How cheap can they make it? And how much can they charge you? Exactly, so. I think there's a lot of really great advice in there for people who are looking to go and create products. 
We're here in beautiful Amsterdam in the Meatless District and we've just recorded a very special interview for the podcast. And it's super exciting for us because this is our first podcast outside the UK, so we're on tour today and we interviewed the amazing Michiel van Drusen. So we talk about Michiel's career in tech entrepreneurship, how he built two successful companies, including selling one of those companies to eBay. In, the, in Belgium, the website grew and grew, and as soon as we were twice as big as our competitor, I think all the big uh, companies in the world, like eBay and stuff, they have analysts on that. So in the same month, we got five telephone calls from wow. worldwide. We need to talk. <laughs> and they wanted to uh, work with us or buy us. And how did you feel at that point? Were you ready to sell your company? Was it something that you wanted to do? I I think it's it's a good question. I think I felt like uh, it was my baby. So it was difficult. It felt like uh, my baby is now grown up and mm-hmm. I need to get rid of her or his, him, <laughs> I'm saying her, and find a partner that yeah. that uh, the company can, uh, can have a good life with. So it was more like dating for companies. And so going into your investing, how did you get into investing in plant-based businesses? Well, after the sale, I thought I would go back to the tech uh, startup scene in Amsterdam and and continue with that. But I thought I'm more like a pioneer. I really like new markets, new things. And the internet industry was was already grown up, Mm. if you you will. I tried to... um, uh, go back to that but I didn't really feel passionate about it anymore so I sold that to my business partner and I did nothing for a while I was already vegetarian I really liked uh, the where that was going and then I uh, saw the news about the vegetarian butcher it was a small startup in Holland they, uh, they were just in the supermarkets and stuff like that and I really liked what they did mm. their advertising their way of making meat for uh, plant-based meat for meat lovers, not for vegetarians or vegans. So uh, I sent them a tweet, a private message on Twitter. And I said, look, if you want uh, to have an investor, if you need an investor that's also an entrepreneur and loves your brand and is also vegetarian, please let me know. Incredible. And that's like the best message to ever receive. Yeah. <laughs> we love those yeah. messages. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. And they loved it too. And the founders themselves were Twittering. So they uh, immediately sent back a message. Oh, we followed what you did in Belgium. So uh, let's talk. We love that. And we mm-hmm. had a conversation. And they were approached by some other investors, but they were on it for the money. And and so Vegetarian Butcher went on to sell to Unilever. Is that correct? So yeah, that's correct. Um, which is a massive success for you straight out the gate with investing. Yes. <laughs> really. <laughs> yes. So wh- where do you go from there in terms of... Um, you invest in a number of companies in different countries. Uh, what what sort of companies are you investing in and what do you look for in the entrepreneurs you support? Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. I think I look for in entrepreneurs um, a few things. I uh, really like to see passion, that they're passionate about their brand, that they are their own brand, that they really um, also listen to their customers, that they talk to their customers, that they are outgoing about it. Uh, I, I need to feel that passion. I uh, also prefer that there is a co-founder. Mm-hmm. That's important for reasons that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. 
I also like that the company has fun somehow. That it's funny, that, not funny, but that it's <laughs> fun to work at, that they take care of their employees. Today's episode is a brilliant one. I sat down with Dave and Steve from The Happy Pair, alongside my co-host Damien. And we you know, you touched on how important it was your energy being in the first shop and then the staff taking that on and then the people getting that as part of their experience. With so many staff now, you said over 100 staff. Yeah. How do you keep or how do you get those guys on the same the same kind of wavelength as you guys and, and mm. make, making them feel yeah, important. We're still trying to figure out yeah. we're working at, I guess. Yeah. When we first started, I was very much um, anti-traditional organisational system. So like the more typical uh, organisational structure for anyone who's listening who isn't familiar with it would be a hierarchy. You'd have the decision makers up to the top and it typically it filters down to the lower yeah. level and the lower level do their job. And when we first started, I wanted a really flat organisational structure where everyone's making the decision, everyone's empowered, you know, let's change the world. This type of, you know, revolution. And a number of years ago, we borrowed a large sum of money with which to grow to open five stores in three or four years. And it was kind of like this idea, we're going to go for it. Yes, we're going to change the world one shot at a time. And we quickly realised after after we'd opened uh, in Clondalk and it was like, wow, i got to be out there loads and not swimming in the sea as much and not bringing the kids to school. Like, why am I doing this? Like, what, you know, what's all this for? And it was at that point we we ended up being asked to be part of a, a photography project for twins uh, from this lady called Liz Handy. Uh, and Dave, when he was in college or university, did a thesis on this business philosopher called Charles Handy. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's kind of sold probably over a million books and this type of thing. Uh, and it just so happened when we were doing the photography project with Liz Handy, her assistant was Charles Handy, age 80. He was like, you're not Charles Handy. Oh my God, you are. And we started talking all business with him and he was like, well, it sounds like you're at a bit of a crossroads in your business. Do you want to come over to my my farm in Cambridge and we'll, we'll have lunch and we can discuss it? So Amazing. me, Dave, our mom, dad and our younger brother flew over and went to Cambridge and Charles, age 80, cooked a vegan lunch for us. 84. 84. And we, and we discussed like, you know, what is enough? What is success? What What is true wealth in life? And he'd no vested interest, like he'd been on the board of directors at Shell, helped Anita Roddick with the body shop. So he'd, he'd really seen beneath the veil of Western civilizations values on success. And through that talk, we kind of realized that success is, for us, is the ability to do a job that we love, be able to swim in the sea, and maybe to scale our business differently, scale meaning to grow our business differently, and maybe it's not necessarily through physical outlets. And as a result, through that, we kind of focus more on online courses and true products. As a and we're very much trying to get back to where there's a more flatter organization structure. And that's, that's total work in that progress. That stems a lot from self awareness, doesn't it? Because I think yeah. obje- objectively, what a lot of people choose to do is follow traditional growth metrics, and I need to open another of these, another of these. Yeah. And I've certainly done that without considering the impact on your own lifestyle, yeah. as mm. opposed to reverse engineering the ideal lifestyle and then working your business around that and creating that balance between what you're doing every day, what you want to achieve, but having a nice understanding of how those two complement each other. Totally. And maybe not opening a hundred sites, but working differently. So you talked about... You know the story, the metaphor of the Mexican fisherman? Did you ever hear that one? No. Yeah, there's there's an American guy uh, down in Mexico and he's just in his MBA. And he sees a Mexican fisherman coming in off his boat. And he's just, you know, he bought a few fish. And he says, how many fish did you catch? And he goes, oh, I got, you know, whatever, five kilos of fish. And he says, well, why don't you catch, stay a little longer and catch 10 fish? Um, 
catch 10 kilos of fish and then maybe, you know, next day hire someone else. And he kind of asked your man, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm, I normally I catch my fish. I go home, I have dinner with my wife. I play guitar on the veranda, drinking beer with my kids and I put my kids to sleep. And that's, that's what he said his life is. And he said, well, why don't you work longer and make more and the next day get like a fleet and the next day get a, a factory and then can it and then do an IPO, then IPO and then sell it for loads of money. And then the Mexican fisherman goes, and, and what would I do then? He says, well... Maybe you'd have dinner with your wife, play guitar on the veranda and put your kids to bed. And it kind of, you know, it, it, it symbolized like, what's it all for? Last question. What do you do to keep yourself sane? Swim in the sea. Swim in the sea, laugh a lot, don't take it too serious. And have loads of lovely, lovely humans around us that make us laugh and not take it very serious. Yeah, and remember you're going to die. As much as much I can, as I can tell you about to turn forty, you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I think it's something like off. Like we'll do a lot of talks, and when you say uh, "remember you're going to die," the room always laughs nervously because it's something it's that so people uncomfortable uh, in our culture, yeah. isn't it? And, and people kind of go, "Don't be so pessimistic." It's like I'm not being pessimistic. I'm being realistic. I, I love that. Love the, I listen to um, listen to a lot of uh, Aubrey Marcus's podcast at the moment. He has a lot of guests on that talk about this, and they said that uh, today's a good day to die having that mantra, but today's yeah. a good day to die. And it makes you so at peace with where you are yeah. that you have that philosophy and it's and just like, yeah, it just removes the fear, m- removes the fear and you go out and do whatever you want rather than being limited by all the things. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do that next week or I'll, I'll make a plan for the future. Won't do that now. Yeah. Yeah. I love from getting into bed at night and having nights and say, uh, geez, if I didn't wake up, that was a great day to die in. You know, and that's like, you know. Love it. If this is it, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> what a great day. <laughs> you know, like, oh, here we go. Guy. We got another one. We are now coming to the end of season one of the Plant Based Business Podcast. And we want some feedback from you guys, our community. So we are thinking of moving this podcast so that it comes out on a Monday instead of a Thursday. And we would love to know what you think please let us know by answering the poll we have created, which you can find in the episode description or getting in touch with us on social media at Fevolution underscore or at plant-based business on Instagram. Also, we get so many messages from what all of you enjoying the podcast. And if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, it would be massively appreciated as it really helps the show grow. Lastly, pre-registration is still open for the Plant-Based Business Summit series of virtual events bringing together leaders of the plant-based movement. You can register at bevolution.co slash plant-based business summit.